several years ago, my, uh, my grandmother was walking with my aunt. They, she was in her 80s. And uh, my aunt was burdened for her salvation and began to talk with her about the Lord. And she recounted a testimony, a, a very simple testimony of her love for the Lord, which thrilled my aunt. And on that walk several years ago, she came to tears and said, I know that I don't have long. She had had a stroke. She said, I know that I don't have long to live. She said, your dad... He's in his mid-80s at that point. Your dad does not know Jesus. My aunt said, well, Mama, how do you know? She said, because he's told me he's going to go to hell. Last year, my aunt's husband, my Uncle Dan, wrote my granddad a letter. He's 88 years old at the time. My grandmother's gone to be with the Lord. He's living in a nursing home. He had had a stroke himself. He told him in that letter the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, you don't have to go to hell. You can believe on Jesus Christ and go to heaven. And if you choose to do that, would you just tell us before you die that you have? You can do that verbally. Or if you're of the mind, you could leave us a letter to tell us. That at your death we'd find a letter that said, after all these years of sin and wandering through the world, I, I've committed my life to Christ. I'm safe with Jesus. Wednesday morning at 3.30, my grandfather died. There's no letter. There's no confession. One of the most moral men I've ever known. One of the hardest working men I've ever known. He taught me my work ethic. He's an honest man. He's a faithful man. He's a loyal man. But I have no reason to believe that at 3.30, when he drew his last breath, that he did not enter into a state of suffering for all of eternity. Friday, I preached his funeral. And I'm going to tell you what I told them. There's only one thing that matters. Does Christ know you? And do you know him? You have heard the gospel Read, sung, confessed, and I'm telling you, you and I this morning have heard more of the gospel truth than millions and billions of people across the planet. So do not sit in these pews and sing the songs and confess the words and pretend to be something you're not. I'm telling you, you don't have to go to hell. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that you are a sinner under the wrath of God and that He has taken the wrath on Himself for the sin which you have committed and you now can have His righteousness by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone this morning. And then, for all of eternity, you may sing with your 
tongue, a thousand tunes, a million maybe, about the glory of God alone. You don't have to go to hell. But one of the biggest concerns I have about our church is that some of us pretend to be something that we're not. You don't have to pretend. At least my grandfather did not pretend to be something he was not. Don't pretend. Know him. For truly, it's all that matters. At the end of the day, it's all that matters. And it is Palm Sunday, and I'm glad Aaron brought the truth of that out, and Dave in the order of service has done that. Psalm 118, I think, I imagine anyway, that um, Psalm 118 was, uh, and that's not what I'm going to preach, but Psalm 118 was uh, on the lips of the Lord as he entered Jerusalem that day. Because see, in verse 22, it turns to say that the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And as he crested the hill, headed into the valley to go up into Jerusalem, and the lambs broke off to go into Bethlehem, the city of holding, and he on into the sheep gate, most likely, I imagine that he was saying to them, I am the cornerstone. I am the King of Kings. I am the one in whom you take refuge or you find no refuge. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful truth. And we're going to celebrate all of the truths of Holy Week together as a church and as a church community. We have services planned. You notice in your worship guide this morning we have them planned for Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Friday, Thursday is at Redeemer. And I'll be preaching on the life of Christ and how that empowers our living today. And that service begins at uh, 6.30. Friday night will be at Anniston Bible Church. Bob St. John will be preaching how the cross and the work of Christ on the cross empowers our living today. And then Saturday, Ryan Limbaugh will preach here at Grace Fellowship at 6.30. He will preach and he will proclaim the power of the resurrection and how it empowers our living in our life today. We see this to be very theological and very practical all together at the same time to help us understand the work of Christ and how it applies directly to us. And so I hope that you will set aside the time. I know a lot's going on, but I hope you will set aside the time. If it's, very, if it's in any way possible, that you will be a part of these services. Uh, and I will call your attention. We got a new Ekbalo uh, magazine, somewhere in the back. If you want one and don't receive one, see me and I'll get us some more copies. This is the periodical quarterly that's sent out by uh, Two Every Tribe uh, Ministries, which we support here in taking the gospel to the unreached tribes of the world. So you can pick one of those up on your way out in the back. We'll be in Proverbs for, for real the last time today, um, in this sermon series anyway. And uh, we're going to finish what we started last week. I know that I left you with, I'm sure, many questions. Some of you may have gone home and said, Carlton has become a raging liberal when it comes to children and doesn't believe in discipline any longer. Um, and that's okay. I'm, I'm comfortable with, uh, with you thinking that last week and leaving you in the tension of 
Okay, all of those things, if they are true, and I, and I, think, I believe it's obvious that they're true, that our parenting needs to be godly. It's necessary that we have godly parenting. Not only that we have godly parenting, but that we have godly purposes in our parenting, which is to bring about obedience from the heart. A heartfelt obedience, not an outward conformity to uh, rules and regulations. And um, so I want to go today into the subject that you might be more uh, familiar with, and that is discipline. Because I do believe that you can fall off the horse of parenting one of two directions at least. You can fall off the horse on the right where you're really conservative and your, your view of parenting is that I can beat them into the kingdom of God. Right? And uh, I say that a little bit of a joke, somewhat not a joke. Some of, some of that is going on, unfortunately, in the name of Jesus uh, when I think Jesus is not to be, shouldn't be labeled that way at all. But you can fall off the horse being too strict. You can, you can bear down white knuckle and force your children to do the same and get that outward conformity. You can also fall off the parenting horse to the left in the liberal mindset of, well, we're just going to love our children and love being redefined as give them whatever they want. We're going to become child-centered in the sense that we're just going to give them everything they want in life and we're just going to meet, meet them and love them and be their best buddies through life and we hope that one day they'll figure out that that love means they should follow the Lord and come to know Him and, and there's this uh, wishful thinking that goes on in that style of parenting. So you've got this predetermined harshness over here and this, you know, ooey-gooey uh, emotionalism over here. You can, you can go either direction. I will be honest, I don't see very much, there may be some, but I don't see very much of the ooey-gooey's in our fellowship. All right. Again, some of you may lean that way, but uh, there's, a whole, there, there's a whole lot of that in the world around us. I think more of what we're struggling from is the right balance, the truth and tension between we are people of the gospel, we are people of grace, and yet... We're calling our children to a standard of holiness and to live in light of God's Word. And so there's this ever-present tension in our parenting of grace married with a call to holiness or a call to obedience, right? And so that's, that's, the, that's the difficulty for us. And we have to admit that our, my tendency, and many of you have the tendency to resolve the tension by doing away with the grace and just focusing on obedience. Just, this is the line, walk it, you know. Um, so I, I, I just say that up front, that's my struggle. And it may not be your struggle, but I think probably for some of you it is. So we see the fourth point of the sermon from last week. So we, had, we have three points that we've covered now. Uh, the first being the need for godly parenting. The second being the goal of godly parent, parenting. Three being the attitude necessary for godly parenting. That of, of, a, of a, loving, um, a loving wooing, a, a, a loving drawing people to believe. I mean children to believe and trust you and love you and you love them. And then you all journey together to Christ. This, this is the attitude needed. Now number four is... The discipline required for godly parenting. 
Yay, we get to discipline. The picture of God is that He disciplines His children. This isn't something that we invented, in other words. God disciplines those that He loves. Hold your place in Proverbs. We are going to come back to Proverbs. Many of the Proverbs speak to this. But I want to go to the New Testament, to Hebrews, um, just because I can't wait to preach in Hebrews, and I've been studying Hebrews. And so the, and I'll try not to preach all the sermons. I'll, I'll run through Hebrews 12 with you this morning, and when we get there, we may spend month, a month or more in Hebrews 12. There's so much truth here, but I just want to bring out one overarching thematic point of this chapter. Hebrews 12 is situated in the sermon that is the letter of Hebrews. It's situated after the hall of faith. Or the, the, the saints that persevered in belief through persecution, through suffering. And then in the first part of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the beginning. That's the, the preamble to what comes next. Now, I want you to see verse 3. It says, consider. All right? So he's, he's introduced to us Jesus Christ. And then he says, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you're looking at Jesus in the way He suffered, then you too can endure in your suffering if your eyes are focused on the one that suffered. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now he quotes here Proverbs 3.11 which we looked at last week. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Look at uh, Proverbs 3. Um, once you look at Proverbs 3, verse 11, I'll, I'll read it for you, what it says. It says, My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. Notice in the quote that the preacher of Hebrews says, he, he, he addresses this to the people that he's writing to or he's preaching to. He makes it very personal. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so, if we look at this text, this is, I believe, the perfect text to teach us what discipline should look like from a gospel perspective. What is the, what is the driving force behind God's discipline of his children? Is it to shame them? Is it to berate them and belittle them? Is it to, uh, to, in a sense, put them in their place to make them pay for what they've done wrong? Absolutely not. Notice that he brings discipline into the context of the cross. He says here, you can endure 
your suffering on the earth, which is discipline from the Lord. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that God disciplined Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Jesus wasn't being disciplined on the cross. Jesus was receiving the punishment due for our sin. Discipline is what's happening to us as we suffer on the earth in the name of Christ. That discipline is bringing us into conformity with the person of Jesus Christ. So we look like Jesus. So we become like Jesus. God's purpose and discipline is singular. To sanctify us. To make us like Him. It's not punitive. It's not condemning. How, do I, how can I be so confident? Because Romans 8 says... Verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't condemn you. If you are in Christ, you are not condemned. So the model of our parenting is not condemnation. It's not punitive. It's not punishment in the sense of the punitive nature of punishment. Or what's due their sin. That's not what we're doing. Godly Christian parents are trying to bring children into the discipline of the Lord. To bring them under the character of Christ. That's why we have discipline in our home. That's the purpose of discipline. For all of you who are afraid of disciplining your children, let me tell you, you are setting them up to not be in the picture or the look of Jesus Christ. You are setting them on a path to destruction. Every one of your children need to be brought into recognition that Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and He washed it white as snow. He received my condemnation. He received my punishment on the cross. So why am I having to suffer? Why am I here? For discipline's sake. So that you might be reminded of the hard road to holiness. Not to condemn. Not to put them outside. Not to shame them. Not to heap condemnation on them. But rather to say you can't see God without holiness. You can't see God without holiness. You need to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is for discipline that you have to endure. See what he says? Not punitive punishment. Not condemnation. You endure for discipline's sake. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, if you're falling on the left today and you're not disciplining your children because you're afraid you're going to harm their little self-esteem personalities, listen to the word of God. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you choose not to discipline your children, God says you're treating them like illegitimate children. You're treating them like the unwanted. You're not welcoming them to the table. You're not loving them. You're not embracing them as your own. You're denying them. We see it, don't we? We, we can be guilty of it. We're at the party, we're fellowshipping with our friends. Here our children are being out of control and nutso. They're tearing the place apart. And we're standing there with our back to it like this, just drinking this, just calm yeah, yeah. And everybody else in the room is saying, 
or right over there, that's a, that's a, you know, a $5,000 piece over there, and your kid's turning it upside down. You, you go, yeah. oh, no, it'll be okay. And you just go, you're just ignoring them. Is that, listen, is that what God does to you? Does he just ignore you in your sin and say, well, it'll, it'll work itself out. Hope he survives. No. He treats you like a legitimate child. He comes to you through the Holy Spirit and he brings you back to himself. It's a model of parenting. It's a model of discipline. Discipline cannot be done from a distance. It has to be done in relationship. Can't be done through a satellite. It has to be done close by. So God loved us and He gave His Son for us. And Jesus said on His way out, I'm sending, the Father is sending you one to help you. The Holy Spirit then comes in and indwells us and disciplines us. You know that discipline, don't you? The temptation is there in front of you for the taking. And you know from your conscience and from the Spirit that dwells in you, that's not what I should do. It's discipline. It's corrective. It's bringing you back. It's wooing you. It's calling you. And if you go into that temptation and you sin, the, the, con, the condemnation doesn't fall. The discipline comes. The loving hand of the Father guides you back. This is the model that I believe is present for us in the Scriptures and so he says, all that the Father loves, all that the Father count, counts his children as sons, he disciplines them. If you're not being disciplined, then you're not his son. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and, and, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good, that he, we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You notice he put the word trained in? He could have put the word discipline there also. But I believe he does that so that we understand what discipline is. It's not condemnation. It's training. He switched the words because he knows our hearts will take any opportunity to run, some of us, to run to punitive condemnation. And he says, look, I've dealt with you willy-nillys over here that want to just let everything go and ignore it. That's treating them like illegitimates, like you don't love them and they're not yours. But listen, for you hard-shell hard conservatives that want to beat your children in the kingdom of God, discipline is training. It's not beating. That's my interpretation. But I believe it's faithful to the text. I do believe it's faithful to the text. The problem in modern parenting textbooks often is the focus is askew. We're focused on the results being immediate results, not the ultimate result of Christ-likeness. We want to set an environment up so that our children understand who God is. Now, I said that last week, and I want to be very practical here. The picture of God disciplining His children is here for us, I believe, so that we as parents can see how we are to discipline. So let me just play with you on both sides of the error on the side that's not doing anything much to discipline or to bring pain into your children's life pain can be in the sense of cutting them off from privileges it can be in the sense of making them work really hard 
to replace something that they broke, it's sometimes painful. Rod likes to call this creative discipline, right? Because it's out of the box. It's not what we typically do. We typically, I typically go to the easiest form of discipline, which is get in the room, I'll be there in a minute to whip you. That's the easiest way to discipline. But a creative form of discipline might look like, oh, you tore up the, uh, the spa tub. Well, that will cost Daddy $300 to fix. So now you're going to work for $300. We're going to keep a ledger to count. You're going to pay me back for that. You're going to pay for that what you broke. That's your discipline. So when all his buddies are out playing and he's cutting the grass, he's thinking, wow, I could be doing that, but I'm doing this. Why? Because I tore it up. I did what my daddy told me not to do. Right? If I had whipped him and sent him on to play, he forgot all about that lesson. But he still remembers that lesson. So, <laughs> he nodded his head yes. It's okay, buddy. Daddy broke a lot more worse things. Trust me. So why do I say this? I say, some of you are so afraid of disciplining your children because you're scared at scarring them. But let me tell you quickly, you are painting a bad picture of who God is. When you refuse to discipline them, your children are growing up thinking God's a weenie in heaven that lets you do whatever you want and he just picks up the pieces later. That's not God. So when your child faces the hand of God's discipline, they don't know how to react. When they suffer in life and they face consequences for what they've done wrong, they whine and squeal and cry, and they fall all to pieces, and they have no category for that. But when you rightly discipline, they have a category. They have a, they have a box that that goes in. They understand that's not hate, that's love. That's just like what my dad did for me. See, the picture goes both ways. God's discipline pictures for us, and our discipline pictures God. And so we're helping our children come under. John Piper says it this way, for those of you afraid to give your children the law of God and say this is what God requires, you're setting your children up to not know they need a Savior. When you hide the, the requirements of God from your children, all you're doing is setting them up to not know they need to be saved from anything. You need that kind of discipline in your home. And, and I believe the text is very plain with that. And so... That's one bad picture. And then there's the other picture of too harsh of a punishment, which makes God look like a father who's whimsical, who's hateful, who's just spiteful, who's getting vengeance back all of the time. And the two pictures are characters, caricatures of the character of God, not character of God. So a godly parent must discipline his children. And there's a place for creative discipline. And there is a place for corporal discipline. Okay, so I believe there are two types of discipline. There's creative discipline and there's corporal discipline. There's, there's, the, there's the hand of discipline which brings physical sting so that you know this is dangerous, this is off limits, this I should not do. Let's look at Proverbs quickly and see this in the text. Proverbs chapter 13. Verse 24, a good, uh, uh, whoever spares the rod hates his son, treats him like illegitimates. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline or train him. 
that some of the manuscripts say he who loves him, who he who dis- loves him and disciplines him does it early. He does it early. Now, I think that the rod's rightful place is early in the parenting process. So that later in the parenting process, we're not using the rod. And I think, I think the rod is for a season in life. Okay. Proverbs 23, verse 13 and 14. If it's rightly used, I think you should be seeing the decreasing need for it is my point. Do not withhold, verse 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, put this in context. In Israel, if a son matured and was still rebellious against his parents, the law prescribed stoning. Right? So what the proverb writer is saying, look, if you love your son and don't want him to be stoned, Hit him with the rod when he's young. Bring him under restraint when he's young so that he doesn't face the ultimate punishment of death. It's loving when you do that. In that context, that makes sense. Now you say, well, if we're choosing between stoning someone to death or spanking them with a rod, spanking with a rod's good. I'll sign up, right? Proverbs 19, verse 18. Just look at... Look at that with me because I I want you to see this. Discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Again, there's the context. If you don't discipline your children, you're setting them up to die. That's what the Proverbs writers say. Give them hope in life. Proverbs 29, where the children are squirming. Don't worry. I'm, com- I'm, I'm going to flesh this out, I hope. Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. The rod and reproof. Remember last week I said when you spank a child or when you discipline a child in any method, it should be explained so that they have understanding of it. Why am I being punished? Why am I receiving this specific punishment? And what's the duration of the punishment? And how do I regain entrance into your, uh, your grace again, in a sense, and in, into your, your full acceptance in the family? That needs to be explained beforehand. So it's not just seen as just an explosion of discipline on the child's side. It's seen as restraint and love. And we sit down and we talk through the offense, bring them to a, a mission of, I know I did this, it was wrong. Then Tell them specifically what the discipline is. Then give the specific discipline. Then re-enter them into love. Grasp, hold them, love them, kiss them, hug them. Tell them that you love them. Tell them that what just happened is over and we're done with that. We're going to move on. Why? Because, uh, you know, I think 29, 15 says the rod and reproof. The two together. It's not just spank. I mean, if your kid does something wrong and you just haul off and smack them, they don't know what they're getting the spanking for. There's nothing worse than to be in the checkout line at, at a grocery store and the mom behind, you know, rears back and knocks the kid almost across the aisle. You've seen that, right? And then to see those parents who turn around, the child's standing there, and they're, they're, they're not really doing anything bad, but the mom's reaching back to get groceries. But when they see the hand out of the corner of the eye, 
That is the rod without reproof. That child has no category for, hey, this is what you did wrong. This is what you're receiving. This is why I'm doing it because I love you. You're reestablished. You're replaced into the family place, and we're not talking about it anymore. They have the mental picture of anytime I see my mom's hand coming, it's a bad thing. Right? No, rep- no reproof. Just the rod. The rod by itself is not corrective. It takes the rod and reproof together. Together. Any form of discipline comes with full understanding. 2215. It's hard work. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. This folly is not what we typically think of. When we think of folly, we think of silliness. That's not the idea of folly in the Proverbs. Folly is sin. Sin is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod drives it far from them. So you got a little child, and they're born sinners. And they have to be restrained. They have to be put under the rod. The scripture says to bring them out of that. So the text is clear. Proverbs 13, 24, 23, 13 through 14, 19, 18, 29, 15, 22, 15. And we could go to other texts. All right? Corporal punishment is needed. Especially in the life of a small child. Now, what should we do in giving this punishment? Because I think this is where I... I, think we fail most often remember what we said from Hebrews when God punishes us when I mean excuse when he disciplines us it is not punishment or punitive it's restorative okay that's the he's bringing us into conformity with him he's bringing us through sanctification into the likeness of Christ his design is to bring about godliness okay and how does he do that he does it close up, one-to-one. It's, it's, it's there for his children. He shows them they're legitimate children. And he does it uh, purposefully, personally, and he does it, he does it without, uh, without inconsistency. He's very consistent. God is very consistent in his discipline. So, this is what I learned as a young dad from a man, a godly man, Bob St. John. I went to him, we had our daughter, and I knew that I didn't know a hill of beans about discipline. And I just sat down and said to him in his office one day, Bob, I don't have a clue what I'm doing, will you help me? This is what I think I should do. I should, um, you know, give out spankings to her. She was of appropriate age. But I don't want to do it wrong. How should I go about this? He said, I'm glad you asked. And he, this is the system he prescribed to me. First of all, you never give corporal punishment for childlikeness. Okay, so what do I mean? Your child, you're sitting at the supper table, you're eating, and your child you know, is just trying to feed themselves, and they drop the food on the floor. And you say, don't do that. I mean, it's a two-year-old. Don't do that. They try and it spills again. And you scoop back from the table and you snatch that child over and spank that child for dropping food. They don't have the coordination yet to feed. They're not being rebellious. They're being children. Or they get up to go get the tea and they come to and they drop the tea pitcher. 
You haven't never told them not to. They're trying to be independent. They're, but they're childlike and they make mistakes. These aren't things we discipline for. We encourage, we train, but we don't discipline for this. Okay? So when do we discipline? For rebellion. So I have, a, a, I have set a rule and now the child says, I know the rule and I'm going to do the opposite. And what are you going to do about it? That's the only place for corporal punishment in your home. It's for rebellion. So you've told your children, whenever your mother addresses you, you should listen, you should respectfully respond, and you should obey what she says to do. And then the next time your child's disciplined by their mother and you're there, you see that they're disrespectful and they don't do what she says to do. Now this is clearly trained. Then it's time. So we take the child away from the rest of the family. Because secondly, corporal punishment is not meant to shame that child. To embarrass the child. To make the child an example. That's not what we're trying to do. So we pull the child away. You need a, in my opinion, you need a place for that kind of discipline. Um, especially when they're young. I like to use my bedroom. Because I want their room to be a fun place they go to and play. And I want my room to have a little fear and trembling to it. I know, I'm a little sick about that. But, you know, I want them when they're coming to the threshold of my room to know business is done here, right? And there's a bench now in my room. And so you want to take the child to your, up your place, wherever it is. You want to sit down with that child. And you want to clearly explain to them calmly from the Word of God where appropriate, always from the point of the, the exact command they have broken. You want to tell them what they have done. And you want to bring them to an admission that they did it. That may take some time. Once they have admitted their guilt, now we say, I say, we say, you are a sinner. And God has taken that in the form of his son and paid the price for that sin. So what I'm about to do is not you paying for your sin. You can't pay for your sin. But what I'm doing is helping you to come into conformity with God and his word. He says, obey your parents, right? So, because of that, you're going to receive, and I tell them exactly what they're going to receive, two, three licks with your choice of instrument, and I'm not going to get into that because it's tape recording on the internet. We can talk about that later, what you might choose. Rod has helped me with that. Be careful what you say in that regard. Okay? You're going to receive this discipline. Now, then the child is to submit to that discipline. This is not me flailing, wailing, screaming, holding, grabbing, chasing, running around in circles. This is, this is not the kind of discipline we're meeting out. You say, well, my child does that. Well, then don't give the discipline as long as that's going on. You say, well, that might take an hour. It might. Parents, you need to think through this, right? 
then give them the discipline that you said you would give. Exactly, no more. And then put down that instrument and gather that child into your lap and kiss them and look in their eyes and say, I love you. What I have done is for your good. Daddy accepts you, and you now can go back into the family, and we're not going to talk about this. And I'm pretty strict about that. Sometimes the other children want to ask, like, what happened? How many did you get? You know. No, we're not talking about that. That's between me and them. That's not about you, right? Because, again, it's not about shaming. It's not about punishing, punitive. It's about discipline, correction, training, bringing them into an acceptable, obedient attitude and acceptance. And now I add this. I, Bob didn't say this, in other words. I then work really hard to find positive things they are doing. Especially if it's the exact rule they broke and now they're positively responding right after that, that uh, discipline, that corporal discipline. I find that and I praise it and I celebrate it and I call attention to it and I talk about it because I want them to know this is right. God does the same thing. You will never feel the joy of the Lord more than when you have been disciplined by Him for a sin and the next time that temptation comes, you resist and you feel the pleasure of God on that. And you know my Father in Heaven is singing over this event and He's happy about this. And I want my children to feel the same thing. And it separates then that from abuse. And you say, I'm not capable of that. Well, if you're not capable of that, then I would say, don't use corporal punishment. If you're not capable of the system I've just described, there's something askew in you. And you will damage your children. And you will paint an unholy picture of the character of God. So, even in the event, if you lose your temper, if you become so frustrated that you're about to lose it, stop. Walk away. You're doing more harm to continue at that point, in my opinion, than if, you continue, if, you, than if the child doesn't receive. So, what's the outcome of this whole idea of parenting? What's the outcome? The outcome is clear from the Scriptures in Proverbs 15, verse 20. It's straightforward. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. The outcome of godly parenting in general is children that are respectful and loving in general and obedient. And that makes you glad. And it respects your, your wife. Proverbs 23, 24 through 25. It's in general. It's not... Every specific case, Proverbs 23, 24, 25, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let your, her who bore you rejoice. The father is happy, the mother is happy, and children, you want that. That's what he's saying. 
Make them happy. Bring joy to their life. Aim to obey so that there is union in your home, not discord. Proverbs 27, verse 11. The outcome of godly parenting. Be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. You become arrows in the hands of a warrior, children. When you obey and follow your father's instructions and you follow out of a heartfelt, obedient heart, you become the testimony of your father. And he then says, the gospel has worked in my life. The gospel has worked in their life. And it's like a piercing error to those who would refute the faith. Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give you delight. Give delight to your heart. If I wanted to abuse this, I would say that means that when I'm old, Noah, you'll let me live with you. You will give me rest because I disciplined you. (laughs) I'm not sure that's what he means, but you can still take me in, okay? No, I think that here, that parents, isn't it true? That when your children are old and they've left home and they're following after the Lord, there's a rest in that, isn't there? There's a, there's a comfort to that that isn't paralleled by many other things. To be able to lay your head down at night and say, I did a lot of things wrong. I messed up on every turn and God made it good. Look at my child. Right? Then you have grandchildren by those children following the Lord and, you, and, you, and you're restful about how they will raise them. It's a beautiful picture. In general, the fruit of consistent godly parenting is children who come to Christ, live lives of joyful obedience, and delight with you at the throne in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the, that's the general truth. But let's look at Proverbs 17, verse 25. Same dad writing this, these Proverbs. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Proverbs 19, verse 13. A foolish son is ruin to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continually, continual dripping of rain. I'm not getting into the second part of that. A foolish son is ruin to his father. Proverbs 13, verse 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 10, verse 5. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Proverbs 29, verse 3. Same proverb writer talking about his children. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people Grown. He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. This, I believe, is a foreshadowing of Jesus' parable of the father and two sons. In the same home, the father raised two sons, and one of them squandered everything with wild and revelous living. This godly father raised two sons. And yet one of them went on his way and squandered everything he had. And the one who even was obedient was not obedient from the heart, but from a self-righteous, pharisaical standpoint. That godly father had two lost sons. Sometimes, in spite of all 
of your effort, in spite of all of your prayer as a godly parent, the child goes away. The child goes away. The child refuses the gospel. In general, they come to Christ, but sometimes they reject and they walk away. And sometimes in the same home this happens. Godly children who follow after the Lord and you have a rebellious son who turns his back on the gospel. In other words, parents, the goal of parenting is not you saving your children. You can't do that. Only God can do that. Your role is to paint the picture to under the power of the Holy Spirit with the help of His Word to paint the picture of the character of God so that they will love Him and come to Him. That's your hope. That's your prayer. That's your work. And then you pray that the Holy Spirit changes the heart of your children and gives them a love for Christ. And sometimes it takes 40 years. Sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't happen. I told you about my grandfather. His mother was a godly woman and she prayed for him all of her life. I can't help but think of her when he died. He died in unbelief. As I was standing there having received the phone call of my grandfather's death from my dad and talking to him about things and service and all that, I got off the phone and Amy said, are you sad? I said, well, really, I'm just stunned. Because I've prayed for years and I know many other people have prayed and worked and I've shared the gospel and others have shared the gospel and it didn't, it didn't pay off I mean, in, in terms of him being saved. But I want to tell you something. In the middle of that stunned feeling was the sweetest, most restful assurance that God is good and His ways are righteous and they are above our ways. And He does not have to explain to me why my grandfather never believed. He doesn't have to explain it. He is God and there is no other. He is right and good in all that He does. He moves in mysterious ways. His purposes to unfold. And so, sometimes parents, you have to grapple with this and you have to come to a restful belief in the goodness of God in the face of unbelief in your children. The perfect godly parent. We've looked at the need, the purpose, the attitude, the discipline, the outcome. But who is the perfect parent? As Chuck pointed out, the, the perfect parent is not Solomon. <laughs> right? I mean, he was not, not a model citizen. The guy writing these proverbs blew it many times over with his children. So Solomon is not the perfect picture. I am definitely not the perfect pitcher. And I joked with Aaron Acker that I was going to say he was the perfect pitcher. And he said, please don't. People will laugh, especially the ones on the front row next to me. <laughs> There's no perfect parent in this room, is there? I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Solomon's not perfect. David, the one next to God's heart, had a rebellious son, Absalom. 
Who is perfect in their parenting? God. God. The glory and that, that keeps the glory of this truth keeps me going in the dark days of parenting. Whenever I'm weighed down with my failure and with my children's rebellion and I believe that it's all for naught in that moment. What keeps me moving forward is the confidence that God overall is Father and He is perfect in all of His ways. Hebrews 12 verse 10, I want to read it again. For they disciplined us for a short time, and I want to say this, look what the text says, as it seemed best to them. Right there is the admission that you are not a perfect parent. Daddy, you are going to discipline your children wrongly. Trust me, if you do it, you will do it wrongly. And you will do it with the wrong attitude sometimes. And you will do, not do it when you should. And you will do it when you shouldn't. You are going to fail. And the Hebrews test to, a testament to us is, it seemed best to you to do it. But it's not necessarily right. But look what it says right after that. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. The picture of this passage is that you as an earthly father are imperfect. And at best, you are guided by the gospel and the power of the Spirit over the Word. And you are discerning the best you can when you should or shouldn't discipline. And you're not getting it right all the time. But God is getting it right. And he's even taking your failure and making it for the good of those which he has called according to his purpose. He is even taking your mistakes, your failures, and bringing you and your child to himself. God is a wise father who trains us to be righteous in, in our parenting and in our lives. Verse 11 for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's perfect parenting always gets its goal. In the end, there's peaceful fruit of righteousness in the life of those that God disciplines. Revelation 21.7, I believe, gives us the end story of the parenting of God. The one who conquers will have this heritage in the new heaven and the new earth. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. God will not fail. So, dad, mom, you've left the last two Sundays saying, man, that's, that is a tall task. I am not reaching that standard. God the Father is. He will prevail. He is there as a comfort to you in your failure and an encouragement to glory in Him in your success. He is there in the good and the bad. And in all of it, He is saying to you, Christian parent, you are my child. In all of it, He's saying you have a home. In all of it, he is saying, you will conquer. That is the most hope that you can have.
or that I can have. More than a textbook about parenting, more than a seminar about parenting, more than, which all that's good, more than all of that, more than us talking about our parenting, which I think we should. We need to hold on to the perfect parent, God, and say, make my failures complete and take my successes and use them for your glory so that our children leave our homes in glory in Christ, not in us. So our children leave, and they rarely speak about us, but when we're with them, they're speaking of Christ, and our hearts sing because there's no greater joy than to see our children walking in the faith. Listen, the ultimate picture of parenting is God. The perfect parent is God. And we, at best, are a shadow on our best days of Him. But even in that shadow, He's bringing our children to Himself. 